I think it is fair to say that in present day many questions of concerning the law of the sea cannot be seen in isolation as pure 100 percent law of the sea issues. Uh, questions don't arise according to the subject of conventions. They arise because they have to arise. And very often in present days, questions dealing with the law of the sea are also questions that you can look at from the angle of other branches of international law. We have just seen now the example of piracy. Piracy is a typical question of law of the sea, a traditional question of law of the sea, but in the present conditions it can be seen from the angle of the law of human rights. What do you do with pirates? You have to take into account their human rights. All this is a mixture of perspective. You could even say that um, piracy can also be seen from the angle of the international uh, security. The Security Council is involved and it considers almost that piracy is a threat to international peace and security. So there are different ways to looking at subjects of law of the sea. It's very difficult to say that piracy is only a law of the sea subject. It's also a human right. It's also a law of international peace and security subject. But there are also other connections you can think about. Certainly it's easy to, to understand that law of the sea issues can cross the path with environmental law issues. Indeed, in the very law of the sea convention there are numerous and important provisions on the environment, but there can be also other uh, moments of contact, points of contact, uh, and even concepts developed in the environmental law fora can find their application in the law of the sea uh, context. For instance, in the advisory opinion of the seabed chamber of the law of the sea tribunal of the 1st uh, February 2011, concepts like the precautionary approach, like the environmental assessment um, obligation, which are mentioned in a very vague uh, way in the Law of the Sea Convention, but are developed in international law of the environment and in the jurisprudence also of the International Court of Justice in the Port Mill cases, has been applied to the law of the sea and in particular to the law of the international seabed area. So we, we, we see that law of the sea and environmental law are very strictly linked. Even it has also been said by the law of the sea uh, tribunal in its order on the southern bluefin tuna case in 1999 that questions concerning uh, the protection of species, namely, even though they may be in the chapter of on fisheries, are also questions 
of environmental protection. So we, ha we have seen that the law of the sea can be seen in connection with the law of human rights and with the law of the environment, but also with international trade law. One case can be uh, quoted as a very clear example. The fact that vessels, fishing vessels, from Spanish fishing vessels, so European community vessels, as the European community is competent for fisheries, fished on the high seas near the uh, economic zone of Chile has been in, seen by Chile as a violation of certain provisions of the Law of the Sea Convention concerning fishing on the high seas, but has certain measures taken by Chile against these activities, such as prohibition to disembark fish in Chilean ports and other provisions, has been seen by the European Union as a violation of Chile's obligation on the trade agreements, on the so-called GATT agreement. And for the, for the same vessels, for the same fish, for the same activities, at one moment, two different cases were started. One before the Law of the Sea Tribunal by Chile for violation of the Law of the Sea Convention, and one before a panel of the WTO by the European Union as against Chile. You couldn't see a clear example of the mixture of approach that in a concrete case there can be. In fact, uh, at the end, these two cases, which would have been very interesting to follow, were discontinued because the parties found an agreement. But still, the intellectual possibility of seeing the same fish, the same vessel, from the angle of trade law or from the angle of the law of the sea was clearly uh, put on the table. And there are also other activities in which different considerations can emerge, especially activities of so-called illegal activities at sea starting from illegal immigration, where you have a mixture of the law of refugees, the laws of immigration, human rights, and law of the sea, and prevention of use of weapons of mass destruction through vessels, or where questions of security are uh, intertwined with uh, questions of law of the sea. Moreover, we can mention uh, before we uh, conclude this uh, review of the various crossings of paths between law of the sea and other sectors, a regional phenomenon. This is the phenomenon of the European Union. European Union is a very peculiar international organization which on certain areas in which its member states have transferred competence to it substitute for the states. For instance, in the area of fishing, the competence of the European Union is com almost complete. States don't have the competence on uh, 
fisheries. But, and so the interlocutor for other states in matter of fisheries, for instance, the subject that could conclude a treaty on fisheries, is the European Union, not the member state. But on top of that, the European Union is developing a maritime policy that goes much beyond what is fisheries or certain environmental aspects on which it has competence. It has developed a policy uh, and also a jurisprudence. Other states have to take into consideration that sometimes they don't have any more as an interlocutor the 27 members of the Union, but they have the Union as such. The, in the Mox case, it emerged clearly that the European Union, being a party to the Law of the Sea Convention, together with its member states, can claim that the, European, that the Law of the Sea Convention has become part and parcel of community law or European Union law. And this has a consequence that uh, has been seen as a source of concern by some. Namely, that disputes concerning the interpretation and application of the Law of the Sea Convention as between states that are parties, that are members of the European Union, have to go to be decided by the European Court of Justice. Because the European Court of Justice, under the European Treaty, has exclusive jurisdiction for any dispute between member states concerning the application and interpretation of, communi of community law, including, according to the European Court, the Law of the Sea Convention. And this, of course, uh, perhaps creates an unbalance um, in the competent courts uh, called to uh, adjudicate questions on the Law of the Sea. Other states have so far given no message about how they feel about this, but uh, I think this is a subject that should be considered. In any case, all states should understand that there is now a new actor that has a policy on the law of the sea that applies the law of the sea convention and whose views do not always coincide with that more traditionally held by its main member states. I will now embark in some brief concluding remarks. Uh, the combination of the Law of the Sea Convention as a treaty in force, binding for, for more than 160 states, and its influence on customary law, and the action of universal and regional institutions, together with new implementing agreements, as well as the decisions of international judges and arbitration, arbitrators, justify the conclusion that the law of the sea today is based on solid ground, and that at the same time is provided with the flexibility necessary to cope with new problems.
The idea of revising the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea has been sometime raised in some quarters in different parts of the world, invoking alleged inadequacy of the environmental, fisheries or security provisions applicable to the high seas, sometimes in combination with manifestations of the state's inexhaustible hunger for further seawards expansion of their jurisdiction. The proposal for re re a revision of the Law of the Sea Convention, I must say, are not always meditated or well meditated. They seem to start from a partial appraisal of the UNCLOS, of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, and fail to take fully into account their diplomatic and strategic implications. If accepted, such proposals would unavoidably bring about further and disparate proposals and counter-proposals, and result in a new global negotiation, perhaps a fourth United Nations Conference on the Law of the Sea. Such negotiation would not necessarily meet in a satisfactory way the concerns mentioned above and would be dangerous for the stability of international relations. It might unravel the balance between rights of coastal states, freedoms of all states and the protection of common interests guaranteed through the action of institutions and adjudicatory bodies. This is the complex mechanism through which the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea helps states to comply with its aims st stated in the protocol to contribute to the strengthening of peace, security and friendly relations between all nations. It seems to me necessary that new generations of policymakers, including diplomats, officers of international and non-governmental organizations, and academic scholars and teachers, do not lose the existing wealth of knowledge of the subtle interconnections between the provisions of the Convention and the historic memory of the reasons that have brought about the conclusion of the Convention and of why most of these reasons are still valid.